Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Last year, we launched our course, The Data-Driven Classroom, and had hundreds of educators and clinicians take this course with consistently amazing feedback. I heard from so many teachers how this course really changed the way they approach data, how they were able to set up simple data systems, train their paras, and be collecting data to make data-based decisions within days of finishing the course. That feedback made me so happy. Now that course has been closed and unavailable since last year, but guess what? We are reopening the course, the data-based classroom, and I want you to be one of the first ones in. If data is something you have been struggling with for years, let's work on this together. Let me give you all of the tools to make this something that can consistently happen in your classroom. And guess what? Since you are a podcast listener, and I absolutely love my podcast listeners, I have an awesome code for you. When you use the code DATA100, you're going to get $100 off of the course bundle. Now, this code is only going to be usable until March 20th. So you only have one week to use this code, but Data 100 will get you $100 off of that course bundle. So that means for less than $200, you are getting the amazing data toolkit with literally hundreds of data sheets, all editable. And don't worry, I teach you how to edit it. And that entire data-driven course that touches on academic data, behavior data, staff training, and so much more. There's a link in the show notes with all of the information. Let's make this year the year that data really works. Hi, I'm Sasha Long, special ed teacher and board certified behavior analyst. Welcome to the Autism Helper Podcast. I'm here to explore different strategies to improve the lives of individuals with autism. guys. Today I am interviewing Rosemary Griffin. She's sharing her five tips for working with students with limited language. Rosemary is an SLP and a BCBA. And when we start chatting, I call her a dual threat because I think having that much knowledge of communication while knowing all of those ABA principles and being really able to work with students kind of from both perspectives is huge. So she said that the term used for SLPs and BCBAs who are duly certified is unicorn, which is way nicer than dual threat. But I can just see so much power and impact that you can have as a professional that has that level of expertise in both areas. And you can really make some big changes in a really efficient way because we're coming at those behavior change goals in a really communication-based perspective, which is what all of our kids need. So like I said, she's sharing five tips. They are super actionable, super user-friendly. She also has a download in the show notes that you can go grab for free. I think this would be an awesome tool to print out for your team and really get everyone on the same page, which is, spoiler alert, one of the tips. Let's jump right in. 
Hi, Rose. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited about this. Thanks for having me. I'm real excited to be on today. I am very intrigued by the dual certification because I feel like you are such like a threat being an SLP <laughs> and a BCBA. That is very sweet of you. We do have a name for ourselves uh, because there are less than 425 people now that are duly certified. So some people call us unicorns. So that, yes. yeah, pretty exciting. That's even better so. than a threat. <laughs> right, I mean, exactly. That's why I was saying it. Yeah, sounds a little nicer. Um, but yeah, yeah it's, it's a really cool way to to be able to help our clients and now with having ABA speech as a blog to be able to come on and just talk about putting ABA and speech therapy uh, into one and really helping people increase their communication skills. Absolutely. I'm so passionate about, you know, interdisciplinary collaboration that it's so nice to see it under one umbrella and someone that, you know, is an expert in both areas explaining how they work together. Oh, thank you so much. You know, I really, you know, I've loved it. I love the field. I really, it might sound hokey, but I've been doing this 16 years as a speech therapist and then eight being duly certified. And I really, I love being able to help people increase their skills and help people who are nonverbal find a way to communicate because it can be so very difficult for some students to, to find a way to communicate that um, it's really a joy to be able to see that happen. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Love that. And that, do you find that when collaborating either with SLPs or with BCBAs, because you have both certifications, you're able to potentially like bring those team members together a little bit easier? Yes. I mean, I really am in such a nice position where I, I work that, um, you know, I do work in an ABA type center as a speech language pathologist, and I work in a public school as a speech language pathologist. Those are my main roles there. But the BCBAs that I am consulting with because we do a lot of outside consultation, and I think that's a really a good model for everybody involved on the team. It really is a lot easier for me than somebody else just because I have both certifications. And oftentimes, because I've been in the same area for about eight years now, I am talking and collaborating with people that I know. So all of that building rapport and things of that nature is something that I've already done. So I definitely am at an advantage in, in that sense. I know that it can be a lot harder when you're dealing with people who are coming in from the outside. And the very most important thing is just to build a rapport with people. Absolutely. I know. I think sometimes we skip the rapport stuff. <laughs> yes. Yes. And oftentimes, you know, I teach um, a class uh, for graduate students here at Kent State, and I talk a lot about, we do, it's an ethics class, but we talk a lot about the fact that when you're coming in as a consultant, you're usually, I'd say 90% of the time, and I don't know if this has been your situation, but you are coming in at a time where things are not going well, and it could be a crisis type of situation. So all that kind of building rapport does sound nice in theory, but it's not always realistic. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're coming in in those situations, people might not have always asked for your help, which is always, you know, an uncomfortable dynamic. Exactly. And in that consultative role, like you're, you're stepping into someone's home, like a teacher's classroom is their home and you're coming in and you're like, Hey, let me tell you what you're doing wrong. Here. <laughs> right. Exactly. And you know, I've always been the kind of person and that's why I love what I do is that I'm constantly learning new things. And so I always try to be the kind of person anytime I'm in a, a mentor type situation. Um, for me, I always try to pick somebody's brain and learn as much as I can from them and 
implement what I think will be really beneficial for the student, but it can make people feel very defensive. And so I, I absolutely understand that. And being a speech therapist and a BCBA or somebody who is in special education, you're not always going to see eye to eye on things. And so I think the way that we deal with collaboration and being mindful that everybody has their own specialty areas and being cognizant of that is very important because we don't always have to agree with something somebody has said uh, and, and it gets kind of uh, difficult in that sense. Yeah, that's a great point because there's not just one right solution. There's a lot of different ways to do things. Exactly. All right. So I'm excited today. We're sharing five tips for working with students with limited language. And I love I love a good checklist or numbered <laughs> list. <laughs> yes, it, that's it good. Feels more, it feels more approachable. You know, yes. I think it can feel overwhelming whether you've been in this field for a really long time or you're brand new. There are certain kids that it can seem challenging on how to figure out the best ways to communicate and to help them communicate what they, you know, are thinking and what they want and need. Absolutely. And that's really how I even got into applied behavior analysis is just working in a private center school that was using ABA and seeing so many students um, who were 8, 9, 10, 18, who had no way to communicate and really being able to learn about the science of applied behavior analysis and apply that and see students who are not communicating, being able to communicate that they want to eat French fries or that they want to go outside or they want to go for a walk. So the things that I'm going to share today will help you get started. I think sometimes, just like you said, it's overwhelming. How do I reach that student who is running from the classroom? How do I reach that student who doesn't want to sit at the table? Those are all real challenges. And if you kind of follow these tips and strategies, hopefully some of this information might be new. And um, I've compiled this into a quick start guide that will also be available for people who are listening today. Awesome. I'm going to link that in the show notes. And yeah, like that's a great point. When you think about problem behavior, like whenever I talk about decreasing, you know, challenging behavior, I first am talking about the positive. Like what communication skills do we have and what communication skills are we missing? Because that's where it all starts. Absolutely. And that's what happens with a lot of students that I've met in private placements is that for whatever reason, people haven't been able to reach the student. They haven't been able to help the student find their voice. And then students develop these intricate problem behavior repertoires. And that's kind of how they're navigating the world. So the idea is always that we want to help our students increase those communication skills and decrease that problem behavior. That's such a barrier for them learning. And it has to go together. You know, you can't just decrease yes. positive behavior, negative behavior without replacing with anything. Right. And it's a team, it's a team approach for sure. <laughs> Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, so what's our first tip? So our first tip is to look at assessment. So I love, love, love the VBMAP assessment that was created by Dr. Sunberg. And I don't know if you've talked about that yet on the podcast, but it's such a great assessment in the fact that a lot of the times we will give our students who are nonverbal different types of standardized assessments. And when we're using those standardized assessments, we're not able to really get a good snapshot 
of how the student is learning. And so the VB map really looks at how is a student requesting, how is a student labeling, how is a student um, using group skills, and all those different things that we may not get to see on a standardized assessment. So if you've addressed that assessment yet in the podcast? You know, I, you know, I tend to talk more about the ables and people always ask me if it's because I prefer one or the other and I don't, Okay, you know, you you kind of have a more familiar repertoire with one, but I mentioned the VB map, of course. Okay. Um, Yeah. And I I think both assessments are great. I don't, I don't even lean one towards, I lean one way towards the other, but it's not because I prefer, you know. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I just love that assessment. And I think if you don't have access to that assessment, something that's really good to do is to just kind of analyze how a student is requesting. Because I have three kids of my own and there is a lot of requesting that goes on. They're all under the age of 10. So I can tell you when everybody gets home from school or in the morning, it's requesting nonstop. They want pancakes, a waffle, get my clothes. You know, like there's a lot yeah. of that that goes on. And so I think that even if we don't have access to that assessment or the ABLES are whatever works for you is that we really want to observe the student and get a baseline measure of how is the student currently communicating? Is the student, like you said, are they using any sign language? Are they using a device? Can they, are they just pulling you to what they want? It's really good for us to get a baseline because that requesting of specific things is how we really get our wants and needs met. And that's really how students learn. I do something, I get something, and that's going to make their communication feel very powerful. So if you have a student, I had a student before that really loved bubbles. And so when we started working on requesting, we worked on bubbles. So anytime the student would request for bubbles, they would get bubbles. And so that builds such a learning history for that student that they understand, hey, this isn't so hard. You know, at first, um, you know, Miss Rose was helping prompt me to sign bubbles. And then we systematically fade those prompts and they're doing it on their own. And I think that helps the student feel really empowered. That's a great suggestion. I love, you know, an informal assessment that's so so easy to do as observing. I don't think we observe enough because it feels, you know, luxurious. I'm just (laughs) sitting and watch this child. But you can learn so much by just kind of pausing and taking a moment to really watch and learn. And the term assessment can be so intimidating, but it can be something as simple as a 10-minute observation. Yes, I think that's really important um, to include for students who are at that language level as well. So that's that's tip number one, start with assessment. And, you know, something to note too, if people are not familiar with the VB map, yeah. it is a super user-friendly assessment. It is affordable. It's six, what, 60 bucks on Amazon, something like that. Yeah. And now um, they're, um, if you liked, now I'm old school because I'm old, but I like to use the <laughs> protocol books, but it is um, an app now. So you can oh, do awesome. it all online. And if you're into that, which a lot of my coworkers are, then that's a way to go as well. And it's, you know, you don't have to be a BCBA or an SLP to do it. A parent can do it. A teacher can do it. It's super user-friendly. Right. Definitely. All right. Tip number two. Okay. Tip number two is student preferences. Making sure that we understand what our student loves and enjoys. And I can tell you from working with students who have more um, behavioral barriers that this can sound really easy, but it really can be very, very (laughs) difficult. I know that I had a student, I've used um, his videos in some of my webinars, and I would see him at the private placement school, and he was eight when I first met him. He had no way to communicate besides uh, 
problem behavior. And he really, this is the kicker, did not enjoy anything. He didn't like uh, to watch a movie on the iPad. He didn't like um, other things that you think most students would love and enjoy, like light up toys and, you know, all those kind of go-tos. He wasn't into that. So I really had to rack my brain and think outside of the box for that student. And if you have a student like that, something called a preference assessment will be beneficial. It's It may not be the end-all be-all, but it's going to help you understand it has lots of different potential reinforcers listed. And it goes back to that observation piece. You could give that to the parent and say, you know, let me know what your student likes. But I really like to kind of use that preference assessment and say, oh, you know, I might have a squirt bottle. Maybe the student will like that. Or, oh, you know, the student might like water balloons or things that we don't always think of um, because I know that I have a lot of potential reinforcers in my office, but when a student doesn't like those, we need to think outside of the box and, and think about what re- is really going to be motivating for them. And be creative. You know, sometimes we get kind of stuck in our in our arsenal, our treasure chest yes. of potential reinforcers, like you said. And I always think about, too, looking at what, you know, quote unquote, non-traditional reinforcers, because some of our kids like untraditional topics or activities. I ha- I was just sharing this story in a PD last week. I had a student many, many years ago who was obsessed with Maury Povich oh and gosh. he wanted to role play being on Maury and giving the DNA test results. And it was oh my God. not traditional, but it was the most high power reinforcer that I had seen because he was so motivated. He would work all day if he knew we could play Maury Povich. And I was like, right. cool, dude, we'll yes. play Maury Povich. <laughs> See, that's amazing. And there's power in that. And I always say when I'm presenting, we need to hypothetically or theoretically ask our clients, what are you into today? I, Mm -hmm. you know, I know you love Dairy Queen just from following you on Instagram. (laughs) I love coffee, right? So some days it's Starbucks, but some days it's Dunkin'. You know, you just never know. So we need to ask our, that of our, our students, because just like you said, if we can find out what they really love and enjoy for your student, that was really great because that was a really powerful reinforcer. Now for a student who really doesn't have a way to communicate with the world, us finding out what they love and enjoy, it could really help help us help them communicate. So if we find out they love bubbles, then we'll work on requesting bubbles. Or if we find out they love movie, we'll make sure that they have access to a movie and things of that nature. Absolutely. Love it. (laughs) All right. Tip number three. Okay. So tip number three is how will the student communicate? This is such an important thing for us to think about. And it goes back to it all being team-based. So is the student going to use an AAC device, an augmentative communication device? Is the student going to use pictures? You know, is the student going to use sign language or are they verbalizing? And I think we really, there's so many things to take into consideration there. It's really great when we work as a team and really having the parents involved as well is very, very important uh, as well. I've had students who they've been using a device and everything's going great. And then we meet before the IEP meeting and then they ask about working on verbalizing. And I didn't know that was important to the to the parents and things like that. So we need to make sure that we obviously have everybody on board and are watching the client and seeing what their preferences are. What are they going to? How is it easy to prompt them to communicate as well? Yeah, because not all parents are going to be necessarily on board with 
you know, one communication method or the other. Actually, a client I had recently, we had kind of a big struggle with the school district because the student and the parents really wanted him to use Prolico on his phone. And the district really wanted the AAC device that they had paid for. But, you know, he was 17 and the AAC device is big and it's clunky and it's not cool. And it was unfortunate that the school district wasn't initially more receptive to what, you know, mom and dad and, and the child wanted. Right. That's so very important. And, you know, I have another story to share. I met a student in sixth grade. He had no way to communicate um, for just a handful of reasons. And I thought, oh, when I met this student, I thought he is going to be somebody who uses an augmentative communication device. And this is really going to be great because he really did not have a way to communicate. And we took data. We ran manding sessions, working on requesting. And the data was not going anywhere. He still needed prompting because he really could not shape a point, which we just didn't realize in the very beginning. So we pivoted and we started working on using uh, sign language. And so we did have a little bit of people saying, well, I don't know sign language, but I got on this really amazing website called lifeprint.com and it shows you all the ASL signs. So we found out, we went to that preference assessment. We found out what the student loved and enjoyed. We worked on those different things when we were working on requesting, trained all the staff because that's what's so important to make sure everybody's on the same page. And, you know, we're working on a lot of early learner skills too. So following directions, a coics and things of that nature. And the student now is able to verbalize and is able to use sign language and really has been amazing to the point that some people like have subbed in the room and said, wow, so-and-so says so many things. And I mean, if that's not the reason to keep getting up every day to go to work and help your clients, um, I don't know what is. So it's, it's really powerful when we make those decisions together. That's amazing. And I love that story to be able to show that even though we're using something like sign or AC, there is that common misconception that that's going to, in some ways, negatively impact the ability to verbally communicate. But, you know, as I'm sure you've seen many times over, it actually can help a child verbally communicate more. Oh, yes. I mean, it just, it was amazing to see this learner and to be working in such a a team dynamic where the teacher was working on communication and paraprofessionals were working on communication. And I was obviously working on communication as the speech therapist to see that student go from not being able to communicate to being able to communicate. It was just really powerful to see that change in that student's life and just the ripple effect. You know, he can communicate with people he knows. He can communicate with people he doesn't know as well. Um, And being able to help somebody in a very specific way that's going to just really change their life is um, really an amazing feeling. So let's talk to the teacher that, you know, maybe elementary teacher gets a new student. You and I probably been in similar situations that comes with, you know, re- limited language and limited ability to communicate. There isn't some system in place. Right. Like, where do you start? Right. I mean, I would say start with definitely collaborating with the speech therapist and seeing what type of assessment you can do together to see what the student loves and enjoys. I think it all goes back to that. And then I think what's so important and and really what I try to always 
do with every single client is to make sure that students have embedded communication opportunities throughout the day. So if I have a student who's working on requesting, I as a speech language pathologist make sure that I talk with the teacher about that. I talk with the paraprofessionals about that. And you know, it's so hard, Sasha, because we don't have a lot of time to get that training in. But I, I know you talk about training a lot. And I just have tried all different types of ways to train staff. Sometimes when I see the student for speech, if it's a new paraprofessional, I'll have them sit with me so I can work with them about how we're working on requesting. And I think that's really important is building rapport with people and reinforcing people who are going to be running that type of communication programming across the student's day. And I think for people, I'm very lucky in the fact that I work with really dedicated professionals, but it is very exciting to be able to see that kind of growth in somebody. And so that inherently is just very reinforcing. So I would say just making sure that whatever communication approach you're going to take is that it's embedded across the learner's day and everybody's on board with what the strategies are. That That's great advice. Yeah. And it's the team approach is key and you want to kind of get someone to, to drink the Kool-Aid, like yeah. you said, to start, to <laughs> yes. start seeing that progress because they are going to want to keep doing it more and more and kind of, you know, be addicted like we all are. We want to keep Absolutely. seeing it. Absolutely. Yes. That is a good way to put it. Yes. You want everybody to be on board and drink the Kool-Aid and, and you just, the proof is right there when you see it. So it, it's really a cool experience. Okay, tip number four. Tip number four goes right into what we've been talking about, which is teamwork. So understanding who is on the team. So I think this is so important from any kind of viewpoint. I always tell this story that about two years ago, we have a really amazing conference here in Ohio. It's called Milestones and it's about autism. And now it's a two-day conference. And I was doing a group presentation about interprofessional collaboration. And I had just found out that a student that I had for about a year had a, another speech therapist they were working with. And I felt like such a fraud <laughs> when I was going to get up the next day because this was news to me. And it really wasn't like the parent was trying to hide it. They really honestly weren't. But it was something that just kind of, because the student was in a private placement, I didn't really get access to the parents all the time. It was a student that lived far from the center. So I wasn't seeing the student's parents at pick up or drop off. And while I had a good communication and rapport with the parent, it just wasn't something that we thought to talk about. So I always say the very first thing to think about is who is really on the team. Because if you, and if you're listening as a teacher, just understanding, you know, does so-and-so have outside services and what do those look like? And can we talk to those people? Because that's really important to have that communication loop. And sometimes we get a little defensive, like, what do you mean there's someone else working with him after school? Right. But in my mind, it's always the more the better. You know, let's let's bring more people in because that's going to help be, you know, make a difference for the child. Oh, absolutely. I Yeah, I think, you know, if there's more people that are working on these same similar goals that we're really going to help the students. So just really identifying who the team is, making sure that you're able to, number one, know who it is and build rapport with them and try to get the parent to sign permission so you can talk to team members and really have that communication loop. I think that's so important. And I think that's so important for our students because we want to have more of a narrow focus for our students, meaning that we may have four or five goals, but everybody's working on them. There's a lot of power in those kind of opportunities. And thinking outside the box a little bit about who's on that team at home, because 
for sure, obviously parents, but maybe there's a babysitter or a grandparent or an older sibling that spends a big majority, you know, of the afternoons or weekends with our students. It's always nice to loop those people in as well. Sometimes we forget about that. Exactly. And that's, that's half the battle is just knowing who makes up that team. And then just always, I think the older I get and the more kids of my own that I have, just (laughs) understanding that, you know, parents are so important on the team. And I think sometimes whatever setting you're working on, sometimes we can feel nervous about talking with parents because maybe we're afraid of what they're going to say, or maybe we're afraid that we're not doing enough, or there's all these different questions that we may have in our mind. But I always say that, you know, it's great to have some kind of communication, obviously set up with the parents and making sure, you know, if you're doing an IEP or something of that nature, that you send a draft home uh, early of the IEP and ask for feedback because because I think that's such a great time for parents to say like, hey, this is what's really important to me. And sometimes that information can be eye-opening for the team. And it's good for us to get a pulse on how that parent's really feeling. It's such a simple thing to do that really shifts, I think, the whole dynamic of the IEP meeting. Because the parent's not coming in with it finished. Like they feel like it's too late to throw their two cents in because the document's been more or less created. And even if, you know, sometimes I've heard people say, well, oh, we could always add it in if they needed it. But when it's typed and all ready to go, it doesn't feel like you can add that in at that point. Right. And I think a lot of the times when we're working with students with autism, we have such a large team. We may have advocates and we may have outside consultants and things of that nature. And, you know, I've been doing this 16 years, but certain meetings I walk into, I'm kind of like nervous. And you know what I mean? Like, I don't care how long you've been doing it. There's a lot. We're talking about somebody's whole academic year. I mean, I take, that's a big responsibility. And so I think that, yeah, if we talk about things ahead of time, the best that we can, and on the day of the IEP, parents feel heard and we can implement and embed some of those things that they've discussed. I think that makes for, like you said, like it makes it feel, it makes it a better feeling in that IEP meeting. Absolutely. All right. What's our last tip? So tip number five is to start work on, I use the word manding, but it's really requesting. Working on requesting very specific requests, so finding out what the student loves and enjoys, and then working on those things and requesting, or we call them manding sessions in the field of ABA, is very, very important because students are going to learn, I do something, I get something, and that's going to be the most important thing for them because if we really think about academics and school, it all starts with communication. And I know that everybody listening wants to reach every single student and wants every single student to find their voice and have a way to communicate with the world. And that's really what's going to teach students to to do that. They're going to understand that they have power and that power lies in their communication. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like in a classroom and maybe how that could look differently in a preschool versus a high school class? Yeah, that's a great idea. So I definitely think setting up a time, if you have a student who has no way to communicate, making sure that we we would say having one requesting session in the morning and one requesting session in the afternoon, and maybe those are 10 to 15 minutes long based on your student and how long they're able to sit and, you know, things of that nature, making sure that you identify things that the student could potentially want to request. I think that's very important and having those things readily available 
to you so that the student, the idea is, you know, the gold standard would be the student would think about something, not even see it and request it. But oftentimes we need to make sure that the student can see something so they know that it's available. And so maybe they see a book that they really love. And so then they sign book and they get the book. And it is going to look different in a high school setting. I work primarily in middle school and high school, and it can be a little bit harder because sometimes our learners may not like things that are age appropriate for school. You know, it kind of gets into Mm -hmm. that whole thing of, you know, I used to train on that a lot. And I kind of feel bad about that, like making sure that everything is age appropriate. I think it's important for our older learners to have access to and exposure to things that are age appropriate. But if you're dealing with somebody who is in middle school or high school, and they have absolutely no way to communicate, and they really love something like bubbles or something that is on YouTube, like bubble up and, um, I really think it's important to to give them access to those things because it's going to help them communicate. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. So um, I think that's really important. And just making sure that you have a time, maybe 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the afternoon, and then you're taking some type of data that's going to work for your classroom system as far as what types of things did the learner request? Did they need any prompting to request those things, et cetera, et cetera. I, and having it, you know, in their day, in their in their schedule, in their centers, and would you say that's something a paraprofessional could be trained to do as well, like during the school day? Yes, absolutely. I think that there's a lot of power in that. And I, as a speech-language pathologist, try to have a shared data sheet with classroom teachers. So I will have not only the requesting, but if that's what's most important at the time, we might just have one data sheet and it has those two requesting sessions. And when the student is with the parapro, they're taking data on that. And then when I see the student for a speech therapy session, I take data on that. And then I go in and review how things are going and then would make recommendations based on that data. And talk about creating staff buy-in. I mean, if you're using the exact same sheet together, like that's really clearly communicating like we're on the same team. You're a teacher too. We're doing this together. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, if you can, yeah, I mean, that's really made a difference in so many students that I work with in a public school and an ABA center is that that shared data sheet, it may seem like it's really not that big of a deal. Uh, And we do ours on Google Drive. So we are still doing data that way. Some places I know are moving to data that you take on an iPad and things like that. And while I think that's all great, I do think it takes away that collaborative component from my perspective being the speech therapist, because when you take things by hand, I do think it's an easier way to talk about things and everybody can kind of see it. It's all there. And so I do think that shared data sheet is a really nice way to work together. And like you said, seeing, you know, how did Johnny do in the morning? Oh, he, you know, he kind of had a rough morning. Let me see how he is this afternoon. So you can kind of reference your own data that day against the previous few sessions easily. Absolutely. Yeah. It's great. Oh my gosh. This was so helpful. I, this was a great little list and I'm excited. And the quick, quick, guide, uh, quick start guide will be in the show notes. Cause I think this would be a great um, tool to print out and give to your staff. Because as we kind of kept talking about in every in every tip, this is something that you want that team approach to. Yes. Yes. I will make that available and we'll make sure that everybody has that. It goes over all the different things that we talked about today. 
Great. And Rose, can you share a little bit about your website and where people can find you if they haven't found you yet? Oh, yes, absolutely. My website is abaspeech.org. And I have a blog where I do a lot of free resources, things that you can download, use the next day in class. And I have a lot of courses about helping students with autism increase their communication skills. So I hope that you will come on over and give it a look. Awesome. Thank you so much, Rose, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Did you know that two out of three teachers turn to Teachers Pay Teachers for educational resources? As a seller on TPT, this makes me so excited. I love seeing educators turn to other educators for support in their classrooms. There are so many great resources on Teachers Pay Teachers. And this could be made even better if we could involve school budgets in this process. Enter TPT for Schools. TPT for Schools makes it easy for administrators and teachers to collaborate when making curricular decisions. TPT helps you set up a way of using school funds for these resources. This is a new program and there's already over 5,000 schools registered. In the special ed world, this is even more important because we don't have that many resources and the resources that are provided for us might not be so appropriate for our class. To learn more about TPT for Schools, visit schools.teacherspayteachers.com. Thanks for listening to the Autism Helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, my goal is always to provide as much value as I can. So your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest, or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Having the right resources for your classroom is essential to making sure your classroom is running smoothly. At the Autism Helper Shop, we have all of the resources you need to make sure you have the behavior, communication, and curriculum supports for your students. Within our shop, we have adapted books, task cards, resources aligned to the VB map and the ABLES, behavior plan flowcharts, data sheets, curriculum. Everything you need, whether you are an early childhood teacher or a high school teacher, we have all of the resources that will meet those students' needs. So head over to shop.theautismhelper.com to check out all of our resources.